0: Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. I spent last weekend up in Omaha at the Men's College World Series talking with our clients, taking in the scene there. Always a good time. I've done it a handful of times. I encourage everyone to check that out if they get the chance. Uh, And since it's that time of year, True Media is wrapping up our first full season in college baseball. We have a college baseball guest with us today. It's University of Iowa pitching coach Robin Lund. He just finished his fourth season with iowa and hawkeyes pitchers were top five in the nation in era k percentage opponents batting average among other things i've got a good case for an ncaa tournament bid but we're ultimately left on the outside looking in in a short time with iowa robin's given the school a pretty strong reputation for developing pitchers guys like big 10 pitcher of the year trenton wallace uh, all-american potential first round pick adam mazer this season And he's done this via an unconventional path from Canada to Idaho to a professorship to pitching coach. So we'll talk about that road in our conversation. And we'll also discuss his work as a kinesiology professor, how that applies to coaching, how he got into more traditional baseball analytics, his approach to that baseball data as someone coming from the sports science side first, working with Iowa's highly regarded student manager program, advice for data minded people in working with baseball people, Balancing individual pitcher plans with team wide goals and approaches, and maybe most importantly, where to eat in Iowa City. Then, producer Sergio de la Esperea will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with Iowa pitching coach Robin Lund. We're joined now on expected value by Robin Lund, University of Iowa pitching coach. Coach Lund, thanks for joining us here on the show. I know, of course, you wish you were in the NCAA tournament, had a good case to be in the tournament. And now we're at the stage of the College World Series. Let me just ask uh, out of curiosity, you know, how do you once that season is over, your playing season? I know you're on to recruiting season, but do you still keep an eye on the NCAA tournament, watch the College World Series? What's your involvement? Just keeping an eye on what's going on on the field after your
1: season's come to an end yeah no we watch um as much as we can anyway it gets pretty busy um after the fact um but yeah so with recruiting and we're out and about and we're doing lots of things but yeah if if i can get to the game and and watch it i i definitely watch it you think you'd be sick of it (laughs) by that point but you're not and you know a lot of the teams that were in it we would played we have relationships i'm friends with a lot of the coaches on some of those teams that got in so just like a fan i want to watch and and see how everything turns out
0: and just for us who you know are not as familiar with kind of the college baseball calendar? What happens as soon as your season is over? You mentioned the recruiting. Does it immediately transition to that,
1: or what's uh, what's life look like kind of over the summer for you? You get a few days, few days off, and they they put in some dead periods during the postseason because you know think about. It. I mean, you're, if you're out, y- your team made the 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 NCAA tournament. It shouldn't be a recruiting disadvantage. So they've they kind of shut us down on the weekend when those guys are playing. But uh, uh, but yeah, it, it starts up quite a bit i mean now with the portal being the way it is like there's there's little holes that you've got to plug in immediately but then we're spending quite a bit of time uh watching high school kids too
0: all right so let's get into your path to where you are in iowa now because this is you know everyone's got a unique path that i think yours is particularly interesting from canada to the u.s now you're at iowa what was your path to get where you were as we kind of set the stage for
1: how you're using data as the pitching coach now okay so i'll all the way back. My, my parents dropped me off in a with the family in in, in Idaho. Um, again, I grew up in northern Canada and just wasn't a lot of opportunity to play baseball there. So I wanted to play really badly. And so my parents really obviously supported me and got me down there. And so I'll fast forward to my high school career being over. I played at a junior college and then at a, at a small NAIA school at the time. Now it's a D3 school, but it was NAIA at the time got done with my playing career, wasn't good enough to carry on, but wanted to keep coaching. And so I I coached at the junior college that I played at for five years, Spokane Falls Community College, while getting my master's degree while, uh, you know, and newly married, young, my wife and I married young married couple. And um, once my wife got pregnant with our first child, Abby, I shifted my mentality and, and decided that I, you know, that probably don't want to do this anymore and I want to make sure I can coach their stuff and coach them and my own kids and so anyway so I went to the University of Idaho got a PhD wound up at the University of Northern Iowa as a professor there for 18 years ran the biomechanics lab taught statistics taught research methods anatomy like all of the all of the stuff that a lot of pitching coaches are trying to trying to get their um trying to understand now and and spending a lot of time diving into that literature that's what I taught for 18 years and so then I got a chance to get back into baseball. Rick offered me, you know, an opportunity to get back in. And my wife and I decided that the timing was right because our kids are older now and, you know, I'm not coaching them anymore. And so let me ask a
0: couple questions about the, the professor part of your career, just because I think uh, some of those tie into to what you're doing now. So you mentioned the statistics part. So I'm familiar with, you know, what stats statistics means from an academic mathematics standpoint. You know, if you're majoring in math, you're taking your stats classes and those sorts of things. How do the statistics uh, tie into the kinesiology part?
1: What's, what's different about that? Or or how does that, how do those two things come together? Well, the, yeah, the statistics class that I taught was your standard stats 101. You know, you're getting into descriptive statistics and, understanding of the basics of probability and z-scores and, and and then ending with some basically comparing groups, you know, some, some classic kind of experimental design type, type aspect to that. So just like anything, exercise science is no different. You're required to do research and, and at the end of the day, you're collecting data, you're, you're designing experiments whether you're just describing things or doing you know, some type of associational type research with correlations or if you're comparing groups and using things like a NOVA or a t-test or those kind of t-tests and that kind of stuff. So it was really more of a, uh, you know, you need this stuff to do your job because you got to publish, you got to do research. And so just like anything, we're collecting data and we're, we're publishing and we're using the same kind of statistical methods that you're going to find through all of the sciences.
0: And what kind of research, like as a kinesiology professor, what's an example of a research project or something that you may have done that then kind of ties into what you do now.
1: For me, I had a real interest in strength and conditioning and human performance and what we can do as coaches to make athletes bigger, faster, stronger, more explosive, etc. So, so my my entire research agenda had that that type of a flavor to it. And then I had a particular affinity to baseball and softball, obviously. And so I did some stuff there. But it generally, I mean, I we did we you know we did work in volleyball, we did work in football. The one study that we did that got a little bit of traction was. We did a study with linebackers, and basically proved that if you're if if you ever if you played football, I didn't play football, but one of the things that linebacker coaches will um, focus on with their athletes is not doing a false step. So stepping backwards before they move forward, it's just that's kind of a natural move that not only humans but birds and dogs and cats. If you just throw your the ball around with your dog, you'll see that dogs false step all the time, and it's a natural kind of thing. And so <clears throat> we de- basically demonstrated that by coaching that natural movement out of them you're making them slower and so that one got a little bit of traction but yeah it's just that kind of stuff like a lot of cross-sectional research have a quick question we want to answer and we collect a bunch of data and and answer it so lots of you know and for me personally it was a lot of the type of studies that we did were more biomechanical in nature
0: the first step studied are there any tie-ins to baseball in that i mean you hear about infield outfielder first steps and how important that is do those, does that, those things tie together at
1: all? Absolutely. Yeah. So like right now, and, and if you get in there and you start getting on Twitter and start looking at that stuff, um, Austin Wasserman was a guy that I, we actually wrote a book on uh, softball base dealing. He wrote a book on baseball techniques of like what your feet should be doing when you steal. But yes, uh, it's called a, a lot of people call it a rhythm step or a drop step. But if you watch high level base dealers, they, when they pick up their, their right foot, they will. Put it behind them a little bit. They'll pick it up and then move it a little bit closer towards first base, and that kind of sets your shin angle. And so, a lot of people call that a negative step, but it it actually does make you faster. There's some there's some there's some biomechanical and reasons that are that are that basically show there's a sou- sound uh, scientific foundation behind why it makes you
0: faster. Right. So, what seems like a bad thing just from a where your body is standpoint actually turns out to be a good thing for more of a i guess physiological standpoint exactly Yep. interesting okay yeah so how did you get more into I'll, I'll just say baseball analytics kind of the more traditional type of analytics as you're a professor how did you
1: learn about those things and, and get into that world yeah i wasn't doing much of that when i was a professor but when i once i got to iowa and i got started to get my feet back into the coaching world you know we had some managers here and they were doing a lot of reporting Um, A lot of describing and quickly found that, and and I knew this from, from my career as a, as a researcher, but you know, you can use data and numbers to answer a lot of questions. This is about any question you have. I mean, you're just limited kind of to your imagination. So then it became, you know, I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of things I want to, I want to figure out and I want, and I felt like it could give us a competitive advantage. Like if we did that a little bit different than everybody else, I felt like that could kind of give us something on our opponents. And I feel like it has. So it was maybe the necessity almost just a, my competitive nature that really got me into it. Before we kind of get
0: into that how you're applying all that now, I guess, broadly speaking, you're the pitching coach. College staffs are obviously much smaller than major league staff. So I know you wear a lot of hats. Just kind of generally speaking, what is your role as the assistant coach and the pitching coach? What does that entail on kind of a day-to-day
1: basis? And day-to-day? I mean, so beyond recruiting, obviously we spend a considerable amount of time with that. But you know, once, when I get to work, it's a lot of organizing. It's a lot of, because we have 20 hours in a week that we can work with our guys. And that includes all of the time that they put in the weight room and and all of those things. And so you've got, we had 18 guys on our staff last year and you want to make sure they're moving properly. You're trying to organize a pre-throw program. If there's any red flags on their assessment, um, anything that has to do with their shoulder or their scaps or their Or forearm or anything like that kind of stuff. You know, we got to make sure that we have correctives as part of the pre-throw program. And then ultimately just organizing not only within a day, the the kind of throwing they're going to do in a day on any particular day, but managing that workload and making sure that their throws and the intensity and the volume of their throws is organized and across the week. So that they're recovering properly and also you know making sure we're coordinating with the strength coach that all of our strength and conditioning all of the stresses that are applying to their bodies from a strength standpoint that that's also aligned with the throwing program so that we're concentrating that stress in a tight window so that we can again begin the recovery cycle you know as fast as possible so it's it's a lot of it's just a lot of triage right you're constantly checking the temperature you know so to speak of your guys from in terms of like how their arms feel how they're performing, whether it be strike throwing or how the how their pitches are spinning and moving, how they're actually moving themselves from a biomechanical perspective, and just constantly taking the temperature on these guys in all these different ways, and making sure that we're getting better over time, or at least holding ground, especially when we're in the season we're more, more yeah, up, So, so right you come into all this. Obviously, we're more of a
0: sports science side first. Like that's your starting point, which is very different than someone like me who has coming at it from more of a data side first and might be able to, you know, observe things. But I don't know how to implement things or something like that. So, how does just that different angle? You're coming from a, a, a different side. How does that inform how you approach the types of baseball data, like you talked about spin rate, approach angle, whatever, all those sorts of things? How does your broad
1: approach affect how you approach things more? from a micro level? First of all, we have all these, you know, these kids in our program that are analysts and they're coming at it. They're baseball fans. They've never coached and they're just really, really bright and they really understand the math side of things. So I guess what I bring to it is more of a 10,000 foot view, some context, you know, like I was coaching college baseball and was a baseball guy before I knew any of this stuff first. So I do have a little bit of an and there's a little bit of an old school in there you know uh based on my age and when i played and and what we all valued kind of in our generation from a baseball standpoint but then i'm also obviously extremely new school with with all the other stuff and i think there's a there needs to be a marriage between those two because both of those worlds can really have a positive impact and so like for example i'll just throw this out there like we have a lot of our managers like disdain the short game disdain they have just a disdain <laughs> for bunting never bunt right never bunt and they will kind of show me the numbers it's like how can you how can you justify that when you know you just look at the just look at the data look at the run expectancy tables and i try to explain to them it's like yes but you're you're looking at it from first of all these expectancy tables were made with major league teams and they're the average of all major league teams across a decade so talk about regressing towards the mean if you'd constructed those tables for individual teams, they would look different. If you constructed them for an individual team and on a separate year, those numbers would fluctuate. And then when you take it and you go, okay, now college games, not 160 plus games, it's actually 55 games, you're going to get even more variability. And so i you know, trying to explain that to them that what if you have a guy that is, doesn't have a hit in his last 10, 10 to 15 at-bats? And he is in a world of hurt, and the wind is howling in. And this team, we know their pitcher doesn't defend very well. And often, sometimes you can get a guy out of a slump just by, but just get him to do something, just to contribute, you know? So he puts down a nice (laughs) run. Yeah, he finally gets to come in and and get high fives as opposed to slamming his bat in the rack and, and being frustrated. And sometimes that gets guys going. And so just, you know, making sure our guys that crunch the numbers understand that there's a human aspect to this game, too. There is a, uh, you know, hundreds, uh, over a 100 years of kind of trial and error with some of this stuff. There's some things we learned the hard way, but, you know, there's some valuable lessons in there. And so helping those guys understand that is, is a
0: big part. Of that, that was a really good example, I think, of coaches helping analysts understand things better. What general sorts of advice do you give to, I'll just call them old school, new school divide that, you know, is blurring quickly, but there's still something to it. So what kind of general advice and things are you giving to, I'll just call it, you know, your data analysts and such who may not have played the game or are approaching at it more from a numbers first angle. What do you tell
1: them about how to communicate and relate and understand the coaching side a little bit more? Well, it's just to have those conversations. Like a lot of times, you know, some of these, some of our kids are really, really smart and they'll fall into that very stereotypical kind of personality type that you often, you know, it's a stereotype for a reason. I mean, they love numbers and they love books and they're, some of them will, aren't necessarily interested in having conversations. So I often try, I try to get down there to their little area multiple times a week and just sit in there and talk baseball with them. Just talk about, you just have conversations, run ideas past them and essentially just getting them to understand that First of all, the coaches, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of pressure we're trying to win and you're trying to help us win, but there is a, again, a very human aspect to this thing. There's a, when you have the boots on the ground, you don't always know everything. Like we can't measure everything with a TrackMan system. We can't measure everything with a Rapsoda or a blast sensor. There's, there's other pieces to that that you just don't understand. And and until you start really communicating with people and having conversations and building relationships, you won't really understand that side of the game. So just really encouraging them to talk and to build relationships and and ask lots of questions um, and just have those conversations. It really does help them get some context because that's really what they're lacking is context, right? They have, and that's where, you know, if if I were to summarize, you said, I come, I'm coming in from a data standpoint and you love baseball, but you're coming at it from data and i love the context and i use data to help me be a better coach so i'm coming at it from literally the other direction data to me is not what i love i love you know i just use it as a tool whereas our guys love the numbers and they love baseball but they're you know we're coming at it from completely opposite directions
0: we've talked about your student managers and analysts a lot and it's one of the bigger more respected groups of, of student managers in the country why is that? What makes this group so successful, both at Iowa and beyond? And what's the, not the secret sauce, but just what is it that makes them so good?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a secret sauce for us. I mean, it, it started out Coach Heller and, and Desi Druschel, who's now with the Yankees, started this program, you know, years and years ago. And quickly, how you get it to, to grow is you have to have a great culture. Like you have to have kids in your program. When I say kids, like our actual athletes are baseball players the quickest way to get yourself in hot water around here is to disrespect the manager. Like that is, there's just zero tolerance. You will respect them. They help us every day. They're trying to help you. And it's, and it's not nothing that we ever have to worry about. If your managers come in and they have a great experience because they are respected and the work that they do is appreciated and you can see how the work that they do helps us to win baseball games and helps to get guys better. Then it just grows. So we're at we're at now where we have like I think it's thirty. We had thirty in our program last year. It went from you know basically helping us set up L screens and and do flips. And we still have part of our group, our our what we call on field. We have four departments. The on field kids like they want to coach and that's what they want to do and they love baseball and they want to be on the field and they physically want to be doing things. And then we have a group that is called operations they help um, our director of ops with camps and and with meals and organizing all the stuff that we need behind the scenes to keep our team going then you got the scouting and video those kids are helping us with all the tech blast sensors and track man and motor sleeves and all that kind of stuff and then the final department are the analysts that do all the number crunching and so but for me you need two things again you have to use them like people don't like to do work and then have it not be utilized like so you have to have that and then and then they have to have a great experience and that's that's the thing like rick is just there's just he just set that tone that these kids are part of our program these managers are part of what we do they're on our team and you need to treat them you know treat them with the respect that they deserve and you do that and you can you can grow the program
0: as far as the players that are coming in whether it's you know straight from high school or transferring What's the general expectation from them from a data standpoint? Like, do they come in with no knowledge of data or are they expecting certain data and feedback from a number
1: standpoint? What do they expect as they come into your program? There is a high expectation because when we we recruit them, that's our main thing is we're going to develop you like that's our thing like we don't have a lot of funny money um we have our 11.7 scholarships and so we have to spread that across all of our counters and so they're not necessarily getting um maybe a huge offer that they might get at another school but what we're selling them is development what we're selling them is a a data driven approach to coaching and so when they come there is an expectation because i basically zoom with every pitcher that i recruit for depending on how it goes, it could be up to like two and a half hours of, of Zoom calls where I've got PowerPoints and videos that I'm showing. And I literally pull the curtain back. This is exactly what we do. This is how we do it. And I lay it out there and that holds me accountable too, because I spent a lot of time talking about it when they get here. It's like, this needs to be how it is because I'll be honest, we have a lot of kids in our program that transferred from other schools. And the reason they left was because they were told that, yeah, we use technology, we use analytics, we use data to develop our guys. And when they got there, it just, it didn't it, it wasn't it was just something that was told to them to get them to, to come and then it didn't it didn't show up it didn't happen so so they they, they went in the portal that it's a, it's important for me like i feel like if i'm going to tell a kid this is how we do it this is what we need to do so when our guys get on campus they expect it there's a high there's a there's an expectation that yeah we're going to be using science and data and, and technology to drive this process and answer questions yeah how do you balance we've
0: talked about kind of a personalized plan for individual pitchers versus what you often see at, at any level with more of a team-wide approach where, you know, this team tends to throw high fastballs or pitch breaking balls inside or whatever it is. How do you balance those two things of what's best for one player, but also some sort of team-wide philosophy?
1: Yeah, you got to have, you have to have both. And there's a balance there. Like, so at Iowa, for example, and it's just driven by the head guy. Our, our head coach basically told me when he was hired, he just said, here are the two things that we'll keep a player off the mound in this program is if they can't throw secondary stuff for strikes and they have an issue walking guys, that's gonna hurt your your ability to contribute. And if guys just run on you, like if they steal and you can't hold runners, then you're not gonna play, you're not gonna contribute very much. So that that those are that, that's the main kind of philosophy. And I tell our guys like point blank, like this is what will keep you off the mound. If you can do th- these two things, if you can hit with all your secondary stuff, throw strikes, and you can hold runners. You'll have it. You will contribute here. So we start with that. So the team aspect is really, really important. Like, and, and again, Coach Heller sets the tone on that, and I communicate it, and we work on that. On the on the flip side, you know, they need to develop personally because they have goals that they want to reach. I mean, they all have. Every one of our kids wants to play professional baseball, and I want every one of our kids to play professional baseball. So there's this, there's this, there's a synergy there, right? Where I'm going to do everything I can, and I tell them this: I'm going to do everything in my power to get you to throw as hard as you can. You're going to have the best stuff that we can, that we can develop. Everybody's going to, their second, your secondary stuff's going to get better. Absolutely. For sure. We're going to do all that stuff. You're going to get big and strong and you're going to be mobile and you're going to move good. And we're going to give you the best chance to be a program. Of course, that's baseline. The other side of that deal is now you have to do a really nice job with the running game and you have to work hard on your move and you have to work hard on these team things. So there's a, there's an understanding that I'm going to do the very best I can to develop you as an individual pitcher. Um, and optimize your arsenal and, and do all those things. But on the flip side, the agreement is you're going to work really, really hard on this team stuff and do everything you can to help this baseball team win. So it's, it's there's a nice little relationship there that we kind of mutually assured. <laughs> destruction is not the right word, right? Like opposite need, of destruction. Yeah, opposite destruction. We need one another to to reach our, the team goal, but also your, your your personal goals.
0: From my just a practical standpoint, this is the first year you could use technology, electronic technology to call pitches from the dugout. How did that
1: how did that go for you? What was that like to see? It was, it was fine. It was nice to be able to to just hold, you know hold the mic up to my face and 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 uh, just you know hide my hide my lips so nobody can read them, obviously. But and then um, just call the pitch. It sped things up a little bit, but I think like you know with us speeding up the game, like we're at the point you know twenty seconds between pitches, and I don't know. Like I think I think we've made it about as quick as we can because at the end of the day, now the rate limiting step is. A decision has to be made somebody has to make a decision on what pitch is going to be called and when you are in a, when you're on a roll and the pitcher is synced up with you and he's hitting with everything and you're just kind of get on in a, in a rhythm the 18 seconds is pretty easy but when when he's not it's amazing how how quickly even if you're just taking two more seconds to process what just happened and make a decision that 19 seconds goes by really, really quick. And so I don't know what else we can do from a technology. I don't think we're going to be able to speed it up anymore using technology, but it'd be nice if he could talk back. I would, I would prefer, I would, that would be really great. So you're still, you're still coming up with some, you know, unique signaling systems and and you still have to come up with some different things so that he can communicate back to me because I'm asking questions all the time. and You just got to ask yes or no questions so he can nod or shake his head, but I liked it. I thought it was good.
0: So we wrap things up here with our plain favorite segment where we just went through a number of your
1: favorites. So I'm going to start with what is your favorite number, your lucky number, and why? I wore number – it's funny. I've got, I'm wearing the number that I had that I wore in high school, number 23. I honestly don't remember why I liked it. <laughs> I just chose it. And then when I showed up here – our equipment guy, Kevin 4K4, had it for me, and I thought that maybe he did a bunch of digging and found out what my high school number was like, how are you going to find that? Because the interwebs weren't even a thing. when right. I played. But, yeah, just number 23. I don't really have a, a rationale for it. It's just, just what I wore.
0: It's always been there for you, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, favorite player of yours as a kid, any sport?
1: Uh, it was Robin Yount. He was my favorite. Obviously, we have the, the, the same name, and that's what attract- that's what I <laughs> liked about him because I was a little kid. But, <laughs> no, he was my favorite player. I was obviously in Iowa City. You have a favorite restaurant there, oh, um, yeah, I guess my favorite pizza place is probably the wig and pen, really good pizza there. And then, in the wintertime, we spend a lot of t- time at a place called Konomi. They have really good ramen. And I'm a flu I love to eat. I love to cook. And so, yeah, it's hard to to pinpoint one. We've been to a lot of places and we tried just about everything,
0: yeah. then I Iowa City a couple times, and pretty much everywhere we land is up is pretty good. Right, you mentioned you like to to cook and such. favorite thing to grill
1: to grill. if you're in Iowa anytime anybody visits us and they they come to our house for a meal we get we do iowa chops it's like this almost like a t-bone pork chop kind of thing so you got the loin and the tenderloin side on it and they're extra thick they're like two inches and for whatever reason the pork here is better than anywhere i've ever been so we always we always we always do iowa chops
0: my wife is from iowa we go there regularly and she would agree with you and i would agree with you on that really yeah they're they're tremendous yeah Uh, and finally you have a favorite how did i get here moment but i mean you know just kind of where professionally you're able to kind of soak in you
1: know where you've gotten to and, and think this is pretty cool favorite one of those moments i mean honestly every time we play it just feels like i need to pinch myself i went i went 18 years where i wasn't wearing a uniform and, and wasn't competing and and you know coaching your, your kids was was wonderful and i did all that stuff and i and i would never i would never trade a moment you know it's a, being a professor was a wonderful job when you're when you're raising children but literally every time I get to put on the uniform, I, I mean, I don't take it for granted. It's just, it's just so great. And the, the hardest thing to get over, you know, with when you're a professor is obviously tenure, you're like guaranteed employment for life, yeah. basically, as long as you don't, don't do anything, don't do anything illegal or, or really silly. And then, so, the, but once I, once I just kind of decided to kind of give that up, it was really, uh, it's been just like, it just feels great. Like, I, I, I kind of like how it feels like where this is a little bit scary um, I can be fired at any moment because it does light a fire under your tail. It's, it's, you can see if you've ever spent any time at a university and I don't want to disparage any of my professor friends, but it's easy to get, it's easy to get complacent. It really is because nothing can get you feel safe. And so the, the you know, getting up and competing every day and going to war with my, with my with my, with the coaching staff and then, and our, and our players, It just, I got to pinch myself almost every day. It's, it's the greatest thing ever. It's a, nice. an awesome job.
0: That's great. That's great. All right. Robin Lund, University of Iowa pitching coach. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value.
1: You're absolutely welcome. Thank you so much.
0: Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Robin Lund for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Lunderton, L-U-N-D-E-R-T-O-N. And check out our show notes for links to articles on Robin and his grilling and the Des Moines Register piece we mentioned on Iowa's student manager program. Joined now by True Media producer Sergio de las Fria, who is still sad that his Gators are not in the College World Series. So sorry about that, Sergio. I know you're still dealing with that, but what did you take away with uh, from the conversation with Robin?
2: I just want to point out that, you know, maybe if Florida was a true media client, they may have had a bit more. We're not
0: saying what we're just saying.
2: Uh, Yeah, we're not saying we're just saying it also didn't help that Oklahoma, the alumnus of my brother uh, was the one that eliminated us. So I've been hearing about that for a couple of weeks now, but it was good news and it was great that Robin Lund joined us um, on today's episode. I really loved his like unorthodox path to how he got to where he was as someone who. Has an undergraduate degree in one thing, worked in another profession, changed, had to get a master's degree, and now is working with True Media and sports statistics and stuff. I related a lot to that, and I thought it was a a great example that you know you're never too old, and you're never. uh, It all depends on how your life is. Everyone's journey is different. I love that he brings that background to baseball as a as a professor, and how how he can get that stuff into coaching. It's just a more bird's eye view. We do a lot of looking at the micro on this show of specific data and things, which is good. It's important. But I also like that sometimes we can take a bird's eye view, take a step back and see, oh, okay, the journey is unorthodox. It can be different because, you know, he's doing great stuff with, with Iowa. He's doing a great job. And so um, it was nice to hear that. What, what about what about you, Paul? What did you? Kind yeah, of just
0: read? to follow up on that, like his path is almost, I don't know, it's a perfect path in some ways, but it is an almost ideal combination of the, we'll just call it the sports science or baseball side and the data side uh, that he's able to merge really well. I think to me, it leads to what, you know, we talk a lot about communication and understanding for people who are coming from the data side and trying to understand the baseball side better or vice versa. And I just thought what he said. It's very simple, but it It's very sensible to listen. If you're a data person, and look, I didn't play baseball past junior high, so I don't know, know exactly how to do any of the things that I think might be good ideas. But just listen and listen to what people have to say. And you know, there are factors as much as you know. We data nerds sometimes don't like to admit it. There are factors beyond just the numbers. You know, and he explained some of those. And you know, those can be taken to extremes as well. But so can the data side. So just listen to people and especially people who have different areas of expertise than you because the more that you know, the better you're going to be at your job. I can take it back to like my ESPN days where I was still learning television at the national level and maybe I have the best stat and I think this stat's got to be on TV, but understanding the rhythms of television and the rhythms of this show or this game can explain maybe why the stat didn't work, or maybe I should have tried to come up with something different. All that experience and all that listening to, you know, in that case, producers and talent uh, makes me better at my job. And I think the same thing is true for anyone who wants to, you know, just be a, broadly speaking, we'll just call them a baseball, you know, data analyst type here.
2: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think, I think it's important to be able to have that multi-rounded. That's something we preach a lot on this, on this podcast and our post shows where you got to be well-rounded. You know, we love the data here at true Media. There's a reason that intangibles are called intangible because you can't really measure them. So yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a great example of someone who has both sides and has a balance. And look, the man's got his grilling too, and so he's he's a very well-rounded
0: individual overall. I think he's he's winning at life. So kudos to him. Baseball and grilling. I mean, what more do you need? They go together. They yeah. go together. And also, just add. You know, we talked about his student manager program for students or people in college interested in these fields look for these opportunities because they exist. They may not have existed, you know, back in the 90s when I was in college, but so many collegiate baseball programs, football programs, almost any major sport will have maybe the analytics club is involved or maybe the, you know, math or computer science department is involved helping them do things or maybe it's a full-fledged manager program like this that does a whole lot of different things. These opportunities are there. So even if you're not playing, you can get some very directly applicable real-world experience because I was in a lot of people from their manager program that now work with MLB clubs, So there's lots of opportunities to get involved in things at different schools. So look for those opportunities if you're trying to figure out what you want to do.
2: Yeah. And I think it's important. This is not meant to be like a <laughs> an Iowa commercial, but <laughs> I think it's important to, you know, if you are in high school and this is something that you want to go ahead and look for, look for places that you're going to get the experience. You know, the big name is sometimes great. And yeah, sometimes that can open a, a certain door for you. But I can guarantee you that if you're more well-prepared and you have the experience, that is always going to trump someone who has just the big name on their resume. So maybe you weren't thinking about Iowa as this, you want to work in baseball analytics and stuff, or or maybe you want to work and eventually be a baseball manager or something like that. You can go to somewhere that has a program like this where you can get the real-world experience. You can get the actual training that you can get. And yeah, maybe Iowa on paper doesn't look um, as good as maybe you know, a traditional baseball powerhouse, like a Vanderbilt or something like that. But as long as you're getting the experience, then, and you have the drive and you put in the work, you're going to be successful everywhere. There's a reason that you find big celebrities that are successful in their fields. Not everyone went to, you know, the biggest name school per se, They, they just got the experience that they needed.
0: Yeah, lots of schools with good kind of manager student programs, North Carolina, Wake Forest, a couple that we work with. And, you know, Schools that may not have formal programs, sometimes that's an opportunity, you know, if you can find the right people to talk to, uh, you can get something started or see what you can do to help. So lots of different possibilities for people looking into the field. All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks one last time to Robin Lund for joining us on the show. Lots of other baseball episodes in our archives, including coaches and front office people from the Twins, Nationals, and Mets, among others. And University of Arizona head coach Chip Hale joined us earlier this year. While you're checking out the archives, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. That helps us continue to grow. And we appreciate any sharing or feedback on social media as well. Hit us up on Twitter at True Media Sports, T R U Media Sports. Let us know what you think. On behalf of producer Sergio de la Esperia and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.